0: in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Let's pray again together. O God, our gracious Father, as we approach your holy word once again, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teachers, our teacher, that he would help us to move beyond the sacred page and to see the living Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the word of God would pierce our hearts and bring us to the obedience of the faith. And now may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to continue on today with our, our study of 1 Peter, looking at chapter 4 today, the reading that uh, Tim read for us today. And I want to, um, to break this up again, uh, looking at the first part of the passage today and then continuing on la- next Sunday, uh, moving on towards the end of verse 7. Um, but the opening part of uh, verse uh, sorry, verse 7 today, 11 next week, The opening part of verse 7 seemed like a a self-contained unit, and I I felt it right and appropriate to to camp here here today. Peter opens up in verse 7 of chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. There's a certain elephant in the room as we approach a passage like this, um, because, of course, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And I'd be remiss not to address this. Um, in what sense, for Peter, was the end of all things at hand 2,000 years ago? It seems like a long ways away, doesn't it? Um, and it's very tempting, and in fact, many, many uh, interpreters of Scripture will now say, well, Peter certainly was mistaken. Peter was wrong in thinking that the end of all things was just around the corner um, 2,000 years ago. That is, it didn't. it didn't quite seem to pan out. It's hard to know exactly what Peter means here with respect to his certainty of the coming or the return of the Lord in his day. I think that Paul arguably uh, believed that uh, the return of the Lord was imminent even in his time. Um, Certainly that's on the apostles' mind. But what Peter means here in that the end of all things at hand is most specifically that all things are in place for the Lord's return. The Lord has set everything up that's needed to be set up for his return, and therefore it may, happen. it may happen at any moment. That's, I think, what Peter's after here. The Lord may return now at any moment because all things are in place. The redemption of the Lord has occurred uh, and set up the, the, um, the possibility now for the Lord's final return and the, uh, the, the ending of all things. But I want to push past that today, and I want to think uh, especially about how the end of all things is at hand for every one of us today. The Lord may tarry for another 2,000 years. I think we need to be open to that. But even if the Lord does tarry for another 2,000 years, the end of all things is at hand for every one of us today, and I, I think that there's an aspect of this in Peter's admonition to us. Our life we read is a breath. Our life is a vapor. We appear, we live, and then we disappear. And for every one of us today, as we sang today, the sands of time are sinking, and the wisdom of the word teaches us that there's not a moment to lose. In the view of the end of all things that is of our life, and the fleetingness of time. Because time is so short for each and every one of us, we need to labor to redeem the time. Many of you will recall the Dead Poet Society, that movie with, uh, with um, uh, Robin um, Williams. Yes, thank you. Uh, and that moment where he's standing with his class, he's standing before this image of, of students in, in bygone days, And they're looking at these black and white photos, and he leans up behind them. He leans up behind these students, and you remember what he says to them? He's whispering. It's kind of creepy, but he's whispering to them. And he says, carpe, carpe, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is a flying, and the same flower which smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The old phrase was memento mori, remember that you are mortal, remember today that you, every one of you, must die. The end of all things for you is at hand. Richard Doodle, the, Richard Doolittle, the, it's the, one of the best Puritan names. He was a Puritan uh, theologian in the 17th century. And uh, Doolittle is about the very uh, best name, I think, for a, a Puritan preacher. But he says, he says this, God has set you in this world for this very work, to make you ready for eternity. Why do you think God has brought you out of nothing and given you a being more noble than all his visible works in making your souls immortal, in doing you with reason and understanding? Do you think it was that you should look after riches and not grace, things temporal, not eternal, to buy and sell and eat and drink and sleep? God has made you, he writes, for more noble ends, for higher employments, for greater concerns. I have read, he says, of a devout pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem, and in his way he passed through many cities, where he saw many stately buildings, rare monuments, and delightful things. But he was wont to say, but this is not Jerusalem. This is not the end of my coming hither. Oh, the years that you have had the months, the weeks, the seconds, the minutes that God has given you to be improved for eternity and you spend it on all manner of things except this cause to be happy in everlasting life. And here you stand, Doolittle says, upon the brink of time. You are near the borders of eternity, so near that you who are in time today might be in eternity tomorrow. Or sooner. My brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. Even if the Lord delays his coming for another 2,000 years, the end for you is still at hand. We are mortal. Life is short. The seconds are ticking away, and each one of them is a gift of God to be used for the sake of eternity. And so we read in that great psalm of Moses in Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, they're 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Teach us then, praise the psalmist, teach us so to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. What are 80 years in the view of God's eternity? And yet these eight short decades that we have are the time that God gives us to trim our lamps so that the flame in our soul burns bright and clean to find our way to the great reward of heaven, the weight of glory which will make everything in this life look dim and pale in comparison. Have you noticed that the whole of the Narnia Tales, all of the trials, All the troubles and the pains, all the joys and the ecstasies, all of the adventure, all of the friendship, it's all about heaven. It is all of it about heaven. It's all been a training ground for the real thing. In all of its magic and in all of its wonder and in all of its reality, Narnia, all of this seemingly thick reality and substance turns out to be mere shadows in comparison to the real thing. Heaven. Heaven the country that we've been made for, the country that even now is stirring up longings in our hearts for the real thing, heaven is the issue at hand. And one day, as Lewis describes, one day we will finally realize that these brief 80 years have been just the title page, just the title page preparing us for chapter one, the story that goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before, as Lewis writes. The end of all things, says Peter, is at hand. My calling as a minister of the gospel, my dear brothers and sisters, is to prepare you for eternity. It's to make you mindful of this very fact that life is short and you're all going to die. You are, all of you, going to become food of worms. And one thing matters in this life that we fix our hearts and minds on the eternity that is before us. We've not even begun to dream. We've not even begun to dream of the goodness that our Father has stored up for us on that day. We're gonna stand before the gates of unimaginable glory, a country, a patria, a homeland, and we're gonna stand like those Pevensey children, and the only thing we'll be able to say is, dare we? Is it right? Can this possibly be for me? And then we shall see the one that our soul loves, the one who has suffered for us in the tree, who has walked beside us all these long years, and he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit a kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. My brothers and sisters, the end for you of all things is at hand today. Life is short. The real life is ahead of us, the thick and the heavenly life of the kingdom of heaven. And having said this, Peter now gives this concrete instruction. The end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore, now Peter is going to tell us how to trim our lamps. He's going to show us how to make our lanterns burn bright and clean so that we can find our way to that heavenly destination. Since the end of all things, he writes, is so close and so near, be self controlled. Be sober minded. Both of these terms here in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter 4 7 suggest keeping our heads about us. They're about keeping our wits. We're to be thoughtful about our lives, we're to be intentional about the, the days that we live. If you look back, Peter's already warned us in verses three to four of chapter four against the human passions of the pagans and the unregenerate, the nations who don't follow the will of God, but they follow their own will, their own human desires, namely here, the pursuit of pleasure. And now Peter warns us again in verse seven by this admonition to self-control. In the midst of this great flood of debauchery Whether it's sensuality or passion or drunkenness or whether it's just lawless idolatry, the worship of money, the worship of our career, the worship of the human spirit and virtue and human reason. In the midst of all this elevation of humanity and the dethroning of God, Peter says, be sane, be sane. Keep your heads about you. Strive to think clearly about your life and about the culture in which you find yourselves. This is no easy thing to do. This is no easy thing to do because that flood of debauchery, that flood of worldly thinking, that thing that exalts the self and dethrones God is everywhere in culture and it bombards us Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a great fan of culture in many ways. I love drama, I love theater, I love film, I love it all. But it's a very hard thing to expose ourselves to this worldly way of thinking and not be influenced by it, to keep our heads on straight, to be sane and sober-minded in the midst of us, to, to view these things with an incredibly critical spirit. So Peter says, in the midst of all of this, be sane, be sober-minded. Now, notice the point of the clear-headedness uh, here in four seven. Peter says, it's for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, it's curious that Peter doesn't say here that we pray for the sake of being sober-minded, he doesn't say we pray so that we'll have the power for the wisdom and discernment to view things aright. And that's certainly true. In prayer, we grow sane. Prayer takes us away from all the din and the clamor. Prayer sets us in the quiet place where we can hear the whisper of God's voice. That's all very true and right. One of my favorite stories is, uh, is uh, uh, Charlotte's Web, and I continue to go back to that story. And for those of you who remember the, the little girl her name was uh, Fern. Fern can talk to animals. She can hear what they're saying. And her mother, Mrs. Avery, is very, very concerned. She goes to a doctor. She goes to Dr. Dorian. and She says, I'm very, very concerned about my daughter. My daughter says that she can hear animals talk. And Dr. Dorian leans back in his chair. and He, 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 he pauses for a moment. And he says, I'm not that concerned about her at all. Maybe she can. Children are quieter than we are. hear things that we can't. Adults are incessant talkers, he said. And there's something about prayer that brings us into that childlike state of quietness where we can hear the voice of our Father. We can hear the still, quiet voice. The words of uh, Archbishop Fenelon, prayer keeps the lamp continually burning before the throne of God. It makes us bright, it makes us clear in God's presence. And this is all true, but this isn't, this isn't Peter's point here. Peter now says that our prayers can be adverse, adversely affected by not keeping a level head. Be sane, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You can see the importance that Peter's ascribing to prayer. It's so important to Peter. Prayer is so important to Peter that he says you need to guard yourselves from anything that's going to affect it negatively or hinder it. In fact, this is the second time that Peter has said this. If you look back into chapter 3 of uh, verse 7, Peter repeats the same thing. Likewise, husbands. Live with your wives in an an understanding way, in a sane way, in a sober-minded way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers might not be hindered. Why is Peter so concerned that our prayers aren't hindered? Why is he laying all this emphasis on prayer? Be sober, be sane-minded, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's because prayer is the deepest. Prayer is the most profound. Prayer is the most intimate, the most powerful, the most life-changing nearness to God that we experience uh, in this life. Archbishop Leighton, I can say it no better than he can. He writes, man was made for communion with God his maker. It is the happiness of his life to be raised up to enjoy this communion. Now, and nothing more in this life is the communion actually and highly enjoyed than in the exercise of prayer. Prayer is the place where more than anything else we realize our purpose. Prayer is the holy of holies, it is the most profound of human experiences, it is the place where we realize our humanity most clearly. Prayer is far more than laying our requests and petitions before God. It isn't less than this, and we're commanded to bring all of our requests to God daily in specific detail so that we can receive liberally from God's hand. But in prayer, we are brought into the secret of the holy fire. In prayer, unlike anywhere else, we are hushed in the presence of Almighty God, and we realize who we are as person meets person. Again, latent in prayer sets the soul particularly near to god in christ in his presence and being much with god in this way the soul is powerfully assimilated to god the soul is minded to his likeness is molded to his likeness it is stamped with clearer characters of him it becomes more like god more holy and more spiritual and like moses brings back a bright shining light from the mount of his presence. Brothers and sisters, are you so committed to deep, committed, unhurried, and abiding prayer? Is it so important to the schedule of your day and your week? Are you so intent on defending your prayer life against anything that might hinder it that the daily communion of God is working in you a brightness of divine heat. For the sake of your prayers, Peter writes, for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers, be sober-minded, be sane, be thoughtful, be deliberate, be intent, guard yourselves from all of the materialism, all the consumerism, all the pleasure-seeking mentality of your age, all these things that will dilute and eventually, undermine your passion to do the most important thing in this life. The one thing that will make you most like God is to find yourself on the mountain of prayer with your Father. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be thoughtful, be sane guard your mind so that you might continue to pray and in so doing, fix your heart on the one thing that really matters, which is the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is the real thing that life is all about. And so God grant to each of, this, each of us this week the power to draw near to him. God grant to each of us this week the power to pray always and in all places without fainting knowing that the Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and so we pray Lord Jesus Christ as we hear your word today teach us to pray teach us to fix our hearts on the kingdom of God For your name we ask. Amen.